Thanks for popping on your headphones and joining us for an episode of Ballsy History, a podcast about big personalities and little-known stories. Settle in for a tour of the outrageous acts, incredible stories, and outsized characters that shape history. We're your hosts, Elizabeth, Emily, Elise, and Elliot. We're glad you're tuning in. Today on our show, we'll learn about a terrible winter and a surprise storm that caught many unaware in the U.S. Midwest in 1888. At a time when finding out pending weather wasn't as easy as turning on the TV or opening an app, unexpected shifts could easily turn deadly. With a temperature that fell nearly 100 degrees in just 24 hours and snow that blinded, the sheer number of tragic stories is staggering. But there are acts of bravery that made a difference, and we'll learn about some of these today. Northwest Plains have weather that is not for the faint of heart. Even this past year, a prolonged Arctic outbreak struck the area, and the Farmer's Almanac predicted a snow train coming down from Canada. The Children's Blizzard is also known as the Schoolhouse Blizzard or the School Children's Blizzard. In the 1940s, a group of seniors organized the Greater Nebraska Blizzard Club collect and organize survivors' stories. The editor of the book, W.H. O'Gara, wrote in the preface that the club had a very hard time coming up with a word or a phrase that would give some inkling of the terror of that day. Eventually, they settled on this, in all its fury. On January 12, 1888, This deadly storm hit several Plains states and territories in the Midwest United States. Due to its suddenness and timing, thousands of people were caught unaware and trapped in its deadly throes. By anyone's standards, the winter of 1887 to 1888 was a harsh one for much of the U.S. November brought ice storms, snowstorms, and sub-zero temperatures. December saw mountains of snow accumulate, and on January 5, 1888, a massive sleet storm coated the snowy drifts with treacherous ice. Yet another snowstorm, followed by bone-chilling cold, occurred on January 7th to the 11th. A massive cold air mass had formed, shifting from Alberta to Saskatchewan. On January 11th, the mass raced across the United States, covering more than 780 miles in 17 hours. January 12th, 1888. Midwesterners awoke to a sunny day with temperatures near freezing. By noon, even some of the snow and ice had begun to melt. An unreliable weather service still in its infancy also played a part in the tragedy. Death and destruction caused by the Great Lakes storms in 1868 and 1869 were one of the main reasons behind establishing a national weather forecasting service. In 1870, a joint congressional resolution The Secretary of War was to provide for taking meteorological observations of the military stations in the interior of the continent and at other points in the states and territories, and for giving notice on the northern lakes and on the seacoast by magnetic telegraph and marine signals of the approach and force of storms. The resolution passed, and on February 9, 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant signed it into law. 
Responsibility for this new service was charged to the U.S. Army Signal Services Division of Telegrams and Reports for the benefit of commerce. Communication, especially away from towns, was limited. With no radio, television, or internet, people relied on newspapers or would sometimes stop by to check any Western Union notices tacked up at the post office. In the St. Paul, Minnesota office, First Lieutenant Thomas Woodruff, who was newly put in charge, worried about sending out too many cold wave warnings. The night before the blizzard, he looked at the readings and decided on a milder prediction. This prediction is what he sent to the Western Union office for distribution. The storm came with no warning, and some accounts say that the temperature fell nearly 100 degrees in just 24 hours. The Boston Daily Advertiser reported under the headline, Midnight at Noon, at Fargo, Mercury 47 below zero and a hurricane blowing. In Huron, Dakota, the wind is blowing 50 miles an hour. A Signal Corps observer named Frank L. Harrod wrote, Sudden and fierce change of wind from north to south, then heavy blinding snow, the litany of fierce winds, blinding snow, heavy drifting, and bone-chilling drops in temperature, was repeated over and over again in the Signal Corps report as the storm system rushed to the south and east. Many pioneers described a dark cloud appearing on the horizon, and all quiet and still, until suddenly an ungodly roar louder than any train and a wall of ice dust blasted the prairie. The cold front raced across the open landscape, freezing everything in its path. Every house, barn, wagon, animal, or person was instantly covered with crystallized snow which was both blinding and suffocating. The turbulence behind this immense cold front was intense enough that the snow and ice was pulverized into a fine powder, one that clogged people's nostrils and froze their eyes shut. Visibility was zero. Most victims of the blizzard were farmers tending to chores and children making their way home from school. Many had left their one-room schoolhouses without winter garb as to enjoy the mild weather. Once the storm hit, teachers, many of whom were in their teens, had to make the life-or-death decision of riding out the storm in the ill-equipped school or head out into the storm, hoping to reach a nearby home. Perhaps the most captivating of stories is that of Minnie Mae Freeman in Nebraska. She managed to lead her entire school of 13 children, ages 5 to 15, from her schoolhouse to a farmhouse one and a half miles away. In her schoolhouse made from sod and a tar paper roof, Minnie planned to keep the children safe inside. Around noon, a blast of wind tore the crude door off its leather hinges and blew it back into the schoolroom. The second time it blew off, she nailed it shut. Minnie knew she had enough coal to heat the schoolhouse all night, but when a gust of wind ripped off a section of the tar paper where the sod had fallen away, Minnie realized that they would all die if they tried to stay in the school. Most reports claim that the class and teacher were tied together with twine before departing. I've never felt such a wind, she told a reporter. It blew the snow so hard that the flakes stung your face like arrows. All you could see ahead of you was a blinding, blowing sheet of snow. 
Minnie and her students were lucky. Not a single one had been lost. Miss Freeman's story of heroism earned her the nickname Nebraska's Fearless Maid. She was said to have received dozens of proposals on top of endless gifts and letters of praise from across the country. That year, Song of the Great Blizzard, 13 Were Saved, or Nebraska's Fearless Maid, was written and recorded in her honor by William Vincent. She is also the subject of a mosaic mural at the Nebraska State Capitol. In South Dakota, Miss May Hunt and her seven pupils were also forced out into the storm. The farmhouse stood about 140 yards from the school, but reaching it would require navigating a steep, five-foot-deep ravine. May sent her oldest student, 18-year-old Fred Weeks, to forge a path leading to a makeshift bridge that crossed the ravine. When Fred returned, they all joined hands and followed Fred's lead. In the few minutes that had elapsed, Fred's path to the bridge had been completely obliterated by the drifting snow. Stepping out where he believed the bridge to be, Fred fell through the snow and dragged the others down into the ravine with him. Though they managed to get out and continue on, they were now wet and covered in ice. Soon nightfall came and exhaustion took over. Fred kept the group going until they came upon a haystack. Fred and two other boys searched for the house while everyone else huddled in the straw. The boys began to walk around the straw pile in ever larger circles, one time around, then a few steps farther, and they'd circle it again. They shouted as loud as they could and held out their arms in front of them, hoping to brush against the side of a building. They found nothing, so they all dug deeper into the pile, hoping to outlast the storm. May Hunt did all she could to keep the children awake and their spirits alive, and Fred Weeks stayed at the mouth of the straw cave and did his best to keep the others sheltered. At 4 a.m., he saw that the air had cleared, and less than 100 yards away was the farmhouse. May and her children were rescued, but not without cost. Eddie Neerman was unable to stand. Her feet had gotten wet, and her thin shoes and stockings had frozen solid. At some point during the night, her feet had turned into ice. In those days, the remedy for frostbite was to rub the flesh with snow, and then to let it thaw gradually in warm water. Eventually, gangrene set in, and one foot was amputated. The other was saved, but she lost all of her toes. Meanwhile, in Groton, South Dakota, several fathers drove teams of horses pulling drays to the schoolhouse. Everyone was collected, including eight-year-old Walter Allen. But when Walter remembered he'd left his prized possession, a tiny glass perfume bottle of water that he kept in his desk for cleaning his slate, he jumped off and went back to get it. By then, everyone had gone. As he tried walking back into town, he became disoriented and soon collapsed. When it was discovered that he was missing, a group of men, including Walter's father and brother, came back to search. Finding no sign of the boy, Walter's father was persuaded to return home, but his brother continued the search. Crawling on the ground, where the visibility seemed a little better, he found Walter and dragged him the half-mile home. Both boys survived. 
pioneers, William and Kate Campen, lived in a small sod house in the South Dakota Territory. They had run out of coal for their fire, so William was forced to leave for the town 23 miles away to buy more coal and supplies. After he had left, 19-year-old Kate gave birth alone to their first son. While in town, the blizzard hit, and several of William's friends tried to persuade him to stay in town. But he knew he had to get back home to his pregnant wife. He tried to stay with his horses, but eventually they died of suffocation from the wind and snow. William was able to find a barn with pigs, and he crawled in with them to keep warm. Meanwhile, Kate kept herself and the baby warm by staying in bed. William finally made it back home to Kate and the baby after spending three days and three nights out on the prairie alone. With a death toll of at least 235, many were not so fortunate. Teacher Loli Royce tried to lead her three pupils to the safety of her home, less than 90 yards from their school in Plainfield, Nebraska. They became lost and the children died of hypothermia. Royce lost her feet to frostbite. Norwegian immigrant Cecilia Knutson became frantic when her husband was trapped out in the blizzard. She went to look for him and became so confused she froze to death under a sled just 40 steps from her front door. Humans weren't the only ones to succumb. Many farmers lost scores of livestock. Cattle died standing up, perishing from suffocation before they froze solid. It is not known for certain exactly how many perished during the storm, but undoubtedly many deaths were never reported from remote outlying districts, wrote journalist David Laskin, author of The Children's Blizzard. Laskin added, Scores died in the weeks after the storm of pneumonia and infections contracted during amputations. For years afterwards, at gatherings of any size in Dakota or Nebraska, there would always be people walking on wooden legs or holding fingerless hands behind their backs or hiding missing ears under hats. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Ballsy History. Tune in next week to hear a new episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.